Welcome to the Think Podcast with Joel Sedicase, Dan Osborne, and Rafe Chenery. So uh, I am normally the host of the Think Podcast, but over the last several weeks, my good friend and pastor Dan has been joining me on on the program. And uh, last week, Rafe, Rafe, were you on twice in a single week? Or was that two separate weeks? It was it was right on like a seven day period edge. So I'm not sure how you want to count it. It, it was either twice. It was twice in about almost almost two weeks. Okay. All right. So now you now you see uh, who's the most uh, precise member of the uh, the tribe here. Uh, let me tell you what. If you want if you want something done well and done precisely. Rafe's your guy. So um, you'll also notice that each of our names on the stream are our Twitter handles. If you want to get in touch with us via Twitter, I think I probably use it the most. Uh, Rafe is also sharing some quality content on there. And uh, Dan does too when he uses it, but he has apparently some sort of a life uh, that precludes him from getting on Twitter. In the Twitter sphere. Yeah. Like the rest of us. Right. So, um, so congratulations to Dan for having a life. Um, so today we are talking about, we're, we're going to be discussing a subject that is known to ruffle some feathers. It's the subject of total depravity, not exactly a feel good topic, but what we want to do is we're going to define what total depravity is and why it's biblical and why it's true to the world. And then we're going to do something a little bit different. This is actually going to be unprecedented in Think Podcast history. We are going to bring on an actual real live atheist. Um, and we are going to uh, to interview him about, you know, what does he believe? What did he believe uh, as, when he was a professing Christian? And what does he believe now? How is it different? Does he think that Total depravity is a biblical doctrine. Does he think it's in line with the Bible? Does he think that it's true to the world? And um, and we are we are going to uh, to bring him in. I'll, I'll introduce our atheist friend in a little bit. But uh, for starters, how are you guys doing, Dan? What's new, man? Uh, you know what? It, it's kind of a rainy rainy Wednesday for me, so um, I'm gearing up for a couple of things I'm teaching on coming up. So I've been spending a lot of time reading the last couple of days and have stumbled on some really interesting stuff um, historically going on with the Protestant Reformation, maybe some big parallels for what we're experiencing right now. So really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm kind of jazzed about a couple ideas I'm working on um, with uh, theology in the round right now. So yeah, other than that, not way too much is new uh, with me. Nice, man. Theology in the Round is your Facebook show that you do with a couple of other park pastors, right? Uh, well, we are four pastors who happen to work at Park. So uh, the important <laughs> distinction there is that we do not speak on behalf of Park Community Church. Why is that an important distinction to make, Dan? Is that safety? <laughs> safety, job security, things like that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah. uh, Rafe, what's going on with you, man? Oh, uh, I'd say similar to Dan. Uh, I am I'm getting knee deep into a really fun project I got going for this summer. We're launching a ten week men's study with our men at our church, um, and I'm putting together ten weeks of curriculum for it. We've called it "Jesus Is the Man," uh, which is kind of a, a nifty little uh, 
name for it. And we got a we got a whole logo made for it and everything. We're getting t-shirts made and the whole nine yards, so it'll be real fun. But uh, man, just digging into developing our men, developing a pipeline for leadership and uh, really challenging some of the cultural false narratives of what a man is that are floating out there today that unfortunately creep into the church. Uh, and I hear them come up all the time. And so, yeah, I'm when, when I start getting into biblical masculinity, my, uh, my inner Dietrich Bonhoeffer starts to come out and I can't wait to teach some guys about it. And so, uh, yeah, it'll be good. That'll be happening this summer down in South Loop. That's awesome. So, uh, for those of you watching on Facebook right now, you can see I'm putting some of your comments up on the screen. As you're watching, uh, go ahead and leave a comment or a question. Uh, you can direct it to myself, Dan or Rafe, and, uh, or you can certainly direct it to Kenneth when he comes on and we'll do our best to answer the, uh, the comments and questions you guys have clean comments only, please. By the way, I had someone a couple weeks ago, try to trick me into swearing in Spanish. Like I didn't know, like, <laughs> like I didn't know what it said. And so, uh, so if you do that, I'm going to have to block you. Uh, I, I do have a band hammer. I'm not afraid to use it, but, um, Does that other than that Spanish, what's that? Does it only apply to Spanish? Can they trick you to, I mean, where other languages? It probably, uh, yeah. and I only know a little bit of Spanish. Maybe, you know what? I know how to, I know how to say hello in Polish. So if you can, if you say that's not really a trick, but I, <laughs> I used to live down the street from a Polish market and I would go in there and, uh, but that's, that's neither here nor there. So, uh, total depravity, who wants to get us started? What, what is it? And, uh, why does it make sense? Let's start by defining it. What is total depravity? Hey, go ahead, Rafe. <laughs> um, all right, well, I'll give it a, a, a stab. Total depravity is a, it's a doctrine of the church. Um, and what I mean by that is you're not going to find the phrase total depravity in the Bible. So for anyone who's listening and they're like, what is this total depravity thing? It's a term that we've used, that the church has used historically to describe uh, the condition of humanity after Adam and Eve fell in the garden. And it describes particularly our relationship to God and our moral character. And so if you're thinking about total depravity, the, the general idea, and I don't have a written definition in front of me or anything like that, but the general idea is, is that... Uh, at our heart level, humanity has uh, has fallen into sin so deeply that, that sin is no longer just things we do, and it's not just like actions we take. Yes, those are sinful things we do, but the actual condition of our heart is that it's fallen and been corrupted so much that our actual relationship with God has been broken as a result, that our heart is fundamentally kind of like polluted and uh, out of line with the way we were originally created to be in relationship with God. And so since our heart is wrong, uh, that, that literally everything flows out of the heart. All of our sinful actions we take, all the sinful things we say and do in life, um, it's all flowing from the root issue of a totally depraved heart, something that's kind of fallen away from our original alignment with God. That's yeah. summary of how I would take total depravity. Yeah, I think that's a really good articulation of it. The, um, the piece that some people think it means is that, uh, you know, when we say totally depraved, we're talking about people being as bad as they possibly could be. And that's not necessarily the implication of total depravity. What it means is that every aspect of our humanity is touched and affected by the fall of Adam and Eve. Yeah. So 
so um, I, I, I like that. I think, um, yeah, one of the misconceptions people definitely have is total depravity means we're all maximally sinning at all times. Do you guys think, um, do, would you say that total depravity means that we are sinning all the time apart from Christ? To put a little language to the idea that you were just describing. So the there is a phrase that's been used in the past called utter depravity. Okay. And utter depravity is that basically everyone is as wicked as we could possibly be. And there's a there's kind of a split. And I'm that's gonna get Twitter. Your, that's pretty much Twitter. That's pretty much Twitter. <laughs> yeah. If you want proof of a total depravity, go to the comment section of any tweet yeah. Yeah. Uh, that anyone posts of any meaning. Uh, proof of total depravity. But the, the phrase utter depravity should be separated from total depravity. Utter depravity says we're all as bad as we possibly could be. And uh, in general, the Reformed Church, the Protestant Church, has in general rejected that idea. Um, although I will say there's some nuances to it. The, rather, the, the idea of total depravity is that the Imago Dei, the image of God within us, uh, has not been totally lost. Uh, and that there's actually, uh, it, it, we're not all only wicked all the time but actually that uh, just we've been tainted and marred to such a degree that our relationship has been broken. Uh, so I'll, I'll come back in just a moment, but that's giving some terminology to what you were just talking about, Dan. Dan, yeah. you like that? Yeah, I think that's really helpful, the, the distinction between total and utter depravity. So Okay. So John Piper, so I, w I went into my study for this episode thinking, you know, well, I'm not going to say, uh, man is not man is always sinning all the time apart. I mean that's that that's pretty extreme. But uh, John Piper, in his very Piperian way, he basically says that that is exactly what we are doing. Hmm. Um, he what he says is this: he says human depravity is total in at least five senses. So I'm getting this off of his website, DesiringGod.org. Here's what he says: one, depravity affects every human, so it's total in its scope in that regard. Two, our rebellion or hardness against God is total. That is, apart from the grace of God, there is no delight in the holiness of God, and there is no glad submission to the sovereign authority of God. Three, in his total rebellion, everything man does is sin. Mm -hmm. So there's the, there's the clincher I was just talking about. And then four, man's inability to submit to God and do good is total, which goes along with three. And then five, our rebellion is totally deserving of eternal punishment. And obviously a lot of people listening are not going to like that. The idea that we deserve total eternal punishment, hell. Mm -hmm. um, but what do you, what do you guys think of the idea? As Romans eight says, it's impossible for those who are in the flesh to please God. Mm -hmm. They, they, they cannot, they do not. Yep. T does that mean that apart from Christ, we are that even even the good things we do, and I know we're all thinking of that verse now in Jeremiah. Even the good things we do are are unholy before God. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I think um, something to to Rave's point early early on is that when the concept of sin, even in the Bible, is, is one that uh, we often relegate to one like a specific action. Uh, or maybe maybe we would say, you know, it's things we ought to do that we don't do or things that we do do that we ought not to do, that kind of language. And yet, it, like, sin is a byproduct of something else. 
It's a byproduct of the fact that we are already born fallen. And so the problem with humanity is not necessarily sin itself. It's that we have this proclivity because we are fallen to do this. Another way to think about it is that we are born uh, in rebellion against God. We are rebels. Uh, so the, the issue is not so much what you do. It's, it's the fact that we are already in rebellion against God mm. in our natural state. There's a uh, <clears throat> another way to come at this. Uh, if you look at Noah and the story of Noah's Ark in, in the book of Genesis, uh, you know, we oftentimes think of the horrendous judgment that took place there. You know, when you actually look at the real story, and you're not looking at the kid's version of, you know, the, the boat with the giraffes floating above the sea and everything's good. There's actually a lot of people that died in that judgment that came from God. And there's a really uh, telling moment leading up to that story where it describes the culture of the day and why God's judgment came on it. And in the book of Genesis, it says every, it's something like this. It's pretty close to a quote. It says, every thought and intention of the heart was only wicked all the time. So you got to imagine a culture where total depravity had run to such a degree and it had literally caused them to be in such a place where every thought and intention, they, they were only thinking wicked thoughts all the time. And then you see God's judgment come on uh, the people of Noah's day as a result of that. And actually, it's really interesting. Abraham Kuyper, who uh, has written, a, who, who has, who wrote a, a lot of, um, just a lot on this topic in general. He actually, uh, because he's looking at that and he's saying, man, every thought and intention of the heart, only wicked all the time. That doesn't seem to be the world we live in right now. And so what, what happened, and he actually says that God's common grace since the flood uh, has essentially lifted up the, the common morality of humanity. It's kind of given an extra dose of, of, of God's common grace to all humanity so that we don't fall into a similar situation where the wicked level gets to that degree. But, but ultimately, our total depravity does go down to every action, kind of affirming what you said, very the Piperian quote you quoted there, Joel. Yeah, uh, and that It really gets to the whole heart. Right. That verse is uh, Genesis 6, 5. Um, in the CSB, it says, When the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time. And then it mm -hmm. continues on. It talks about how God regretted that he had made humanity, that he had made mankind. I mean, imagine that society. Yeah. Can you imagine if Chicago right now every thought of every person every intention of the heart was only wicked all the time Oof. but you would say that's not the case apart from christ of of you know say even even ourselves before we became christians yeah well go ahead dan i don't know if you i don't know if you could say that every thought to the full ex fullest extent is uh depraved because that would that would i think Kind of necessarily lead into utter depravity. Well, no, no, right. Not to the fullest extent, but sinful in some degree, even if it's a, you know, 1% sinful or, you know, 1% tainted. I mean, not that you can necessarily measure it that way, but are we, are we saying that apart from, apart from regeneration, apart from being born again, a person could have any thoughts or actions that were, that were pure, that were untainted by sin. I think that's no. your, that's your key word right there, Joel is untainted by sin. And I think the, the ultimate answer to that, I, I would agree with Piper in, in saying that everything we do is untainted, is tainted by sin when you're outside of Christ, because frankly, your whole, uh, your model of interpreting reality <clears throat> is is off. You, you, you can't, 
you know, the, the Christian is able to look at uh, a rock on the ground and know the full meaning of that rock is that that rock was made to give glory to God. Uh, mm-hmm. And the non-believer can't. They're, ultimately, there's an idol taking place in their life. They've replaced God with something else, whether it's themselves, and that's interpreting all of reality. And so to a degree, yes, everything is tainted by yeah. sin. Um, at the same time, you know, it's very important for Christians to recognize, uh, man, I've been... I've been loved in very powerful ways and cared for in very, very powerful ways by non-Christians throughout my whole life. I've got, every, I mean, every, there's so many stories of incredible uh, acts of kindness from one person to another. And so I think the, uh, the language you use there is tainted, uh, meaning our heart yeah. towards God, which is the root of sin, has pervaded everything we do. Yes. Okay. So we're going to bring Kenneth on here in just a minute. Um, but... Let's talk quickly. Is this a doctrine we see being played out in the real world? When we look at the world, do we see that the Bible's teaching on total depravity actually is true? Do we see that in the world? Or do we see, you know, human beings are basically good? Or are we sort of morally neutral? I'd say there is a test for that. (laughs) And the test for that is... Has there ever been a person that anybody can point to that has not morally failed? Because if the answer is that it's not total depravity, then certainly at some point we should be able to point to somebody and say it's really not as deep as a human condition of the heart. At some point, someone should be born that was able to do it. Now, obviously, as a Christian, we point to Jesus and say Jesus did that, and he was the one exception to this rule. But outside of Christ, we should be able to find somebody. And the, the real answer is, to this point in history, I don't believe anyone's ever pointed to one person and said they're without fault. So I think that's a fairly, uh, a fairly thorough litmus test for the total depravity case. Yeah, I mean, I look at, um, I look at um, well, first of all, I look at my mug on the screen, and I don't know what's going on, but if you guys are, there's like a, it's like its own little green screen. I don't know what it's doing there, but... It looks like it's showing like a different realm. Yes, it does. What's behind you is not what is on the screen. That's really (laughs) weird. So if you're if you're what if you're just listening to this podcast, you're really missing out on some uh, crazy visual. The Stranger Things podcast. That's right. That's the upside down is in my mug. Uh, I don't I don't watch such uh, such uh, immoral uh, trash though. But um, but that's cool that that you guys do. Um, So uh, I wanted to (laughs) I wanted to. I wanted to look up some examples from that, from the headlines, from news, um, and uh, and sort of give them as as you know, hey, here's some examples of of like total depravity. Okay, um, I, I want to just give a few examples. Uh, some of the examples I wanted to give, I literally cannot say on this podcast because my children listen to the podcast. Okay, but I'm just going to listen to it. I'm just, I'm just going to list list a few of them. All right, uh, the existence of abortion. The happy slapping game where um, teenagers go up to random strangers, slap them in the face and try to, uh, or also known as the knockout game where they try to knock them down and they film it and put it on YouTube and Facebook. Um, Poaching, racism, terrorism, Nazism, uh, animal blood sports, the torture of political prisoners, human sacrifice by pretty much every culture up until the Christian era. Uh, the Chinese communist re-education camps, 
And there are many other wretched examples of just widespread depravity. Um, you can, I mean, man, pull up Fox News, CNN, Drudge Report, pull up any any website and just look at the corruption and the the violence. And you might say, well, sure, those are extreme examples. Uh, but, but the fact is that the examples are widespread throughout society and and they pervade every culture throughout history and and you might say well that's that's all well and good for them but that doesn't apply to me but then i would just encourage us all to look inside of our own hearts and uh, you know even our own desire for self-improvement you know as men we often want to improve ourselves there are websites and programs devoted to that that indicates that we know that there's something wrong with us um we all know that we have sin and immorality in our own hearts that we tolerate, even if we're not acting on it, we have the desires. Where do those desires come from? Desires that we would say that if I were to act on that desire, that would be wrong. And yet I nevertheless have the desire to do it. Hmm. So there's there's something within us that actually desires to do things, to take actions that we would know would be wrong if we were to do it. Um, Our constant comparison to our neighbors, whether to say, well, at least I'm not as bad as him. That, that's that's sort of a low-key backhanded way of saying I know I'm bad <laughs> I just I'm not as bad as him mm-hmm. um our 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 um failure to live up uh to the biblical paradigm now of course the three of us were Christians and really the only way to come to, to talk about this is as Christians within the biblical framework does the world correspond to what the biblical framework uh puts forward and then yeah. what we can do is we can look at uh, other frameworks, other worldviews and positions, yeah. and say, are those internally consistent as well? Do those correspond to the world that we see around us as well? So, uh, Dan, any thoughts on that before we... Yeah, yeah. One thought yeah. before we jump in. I'm sure we could continue talking and, and list more examples of what we see as total, total depravity or evidence of total depravity. Uh, and yet those are the th- same things that... Um, uh, like we view those things through the lens of our, uh, you know, our anthropologic lens. It's informed by the scriptures. Obviously, if you're not starting from the place of the scriptures being true and informing your view of reality, you could look at the same events and see them as not as evidence of total depravity, but of something else. So case in point, you know, we could look at, I could look at the interaction that my uh, two sons had this morning fighting as they're stealing uh, their sister's uh uh, doll push cart thing, right? They're, they're, they're stealing this from her. Uh, and, you know, I have to say no one taught them how to steal, uh, but I'm already starting from a framework that scripture, you know, it teaches uh, the, the, the concept of stealing already baked into our uh, humanity and that they're, they are active. They're, they're already living in rebellion uh, to God's law that should be written on their hearts. Um, and so that and a lot of other examples, when Kenneth comes on here, we might point to them as evidence and he might not see it that way. So I think that's uh, an important important piece of the conversation. Yes. Oh, awesome, Dan. Thanks. Uh, all right, guys. So at this point, let's go ahead and bring in our um, devil's advocate who I don't think would even believe in the devil. Uh, and that is uh, my new friend, Kenneth Leonard, and I hope he doesn't mind me calling him a friend. We've we've interacted a little bit on um, online, mostly in in by, by way of messenger. Although I feel like I know him a little bit uh, more than that because I'm actually preparing to debate him um, on May sixth. 
I believe, May 5th or 6th, I think May 6th. And uh, so I've been watching some of the, the videos that he's been putting out and, and taking notes and things like that. So uh, let's go ahead and bring in our opposing viewpoint. And that is Kenneth Leonard. Hey. Hey. How's it going? Hey, man. I, I'm reminded of uh, a time when uh, Christopher Hitchens talked about entering a church. He, and he said he was uh, felt very, very welcome in this den of lambs. Um, <laughs> um, uh, thanks for having me. That's good. That's good. That's a good entrance. And I hope our debate's on the 6th because that's when it's marked on my calendar. So. <laughs> okay, good, good. So so if I show up on the 7th and I wonder where you are, uh, right. I'll know you didn't chicken out. Right, right. Um, so, uh, so first of all, Ken or Kenneth? And please don't say either one. Well, I've, I've been called worse either way, but uh, Ken's fine. Yeah. Okay. okay. Monosyllabic is, is good. Okay. So, so Ken, um, your background is uh, you you are a uh, former professing Christian. You are, um, let's see, you you are a graduate of, uh, where did you get your undergrad again? I'm sorry, I'm pulling up. The, the, it was uh, San, San Diego State. I studied English literature and neuroscience at San Diego State. Okay. Um, so so you're definitely no slouch in the um, the thinking department. And that's why I knew you'd be a good person to to bring on here. Uh, give us a little bit of, of background. You're an atheist now, but you haven't always been true. Right. Right. No, I was raised in a, in a very, um, you know, uh, from, I mean, from my perspective, I, I would have said it, you know, it's hardcore, a, a Christian family as, as you could have grown up in. Um, we, gosh, I, I was talking to a friend of mine. My, my first concert was, uh, was Carmen. I don't know if that resonates with you guys at all. Um, I, uh, was a, was a member of, uh, of, of, uh, a Christian homeschool group for a number of years. Um, both my brother and I were, were homeschooled by, by our mom. Um, and, um, was very, very focused on actually on, on, on biblical manhood. So what, what, uh, was being talked about earlier sort of resonated with me. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, I didn't walk away from my, uh, my faith until I was in my, my mid twenties. Um, yeah. How did that? How did that? If you want to give us like the the thirty second synopsis, the the TLDR well, version. Sure. Well, I I can I'll say I mean that could be a, a whole crazy rabbit hole, but sure. the the question that that sort of put the initial crack in my my armor was related to to Calvinism, um, because I I would have I totally agree with Piper's uh, analysis. Um, and when I was thinking about if if God knows who is predestined to you know to righteousness and to redemption and who is is not part of the elect, um, why go on creating unelected individuals? And that that was the question that got me to start doing very very serious Bible study. And um, over the course of a few years of of reading and studying the Bible, I I sort of let go of Christianity and. Um, then sort of played around with some deism and some sort of like pantheistic weird stuff before saying, no, nah, I, I just, I don't think that any of my uh, faith-based beliefs, um, can be sufficiently justified. And that's when I adopted, uh, atheism as a, a label. Got it. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. Sure. And, um, as you hear us, um, I don't know if you had a chance to, to listen in a little bit before you. Some. Yeah. Some. Okay. So. Um, and as a, as someone who formerly um, subscribed to Calvinism, and I want to be theologically correct here. So biblically speaking, 
and and I already told you this, so I feel like I'm okay saying it now. Mm-hmm. Uh, biblically speaking, I I don't feel like I would be theologically correct to say that anyone could be a former Christian because I don't believe that once you've been born again, you could stop being born again, right? So right. Uh, that being said, I think it's okay to call someone a former Calvinist. I don't. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> sure. I don't know. You guys can. You guys are are the the pastors. Is that okay? Can I say it more? <laughs> permission, permission, permission granted, Joel. So, 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 Kenneth, um, when it comes, or Ken, sorry, when it comes to total depravity, um, you you told me earlier you do believe that it is a biblical doctrine. You just don't think it's true. Yeah, yeah. So, if I think that maybe the best way to do this would be if I just sort of take you know a, a few minutes and sort of lay out my objections, and then you guys can can point out the the issues there. Um, and I want to say, I haven't talked theology in a very long time. So this is a, a real treat for me. Um, and like I said, I, I, I would have, I, I agree with Piper, but, um, I'm sort of thinking about Calvin, right? So total depravity has its roots in the doctrine of original sin. Um, we, we, as you guys talked about, uh, Calvin said in institutes of the Christian religion, that original sin is this hereditary depravity and corruption of our nature that is diffused into all parts of the soul. Um, and he stated that all parts of the soul were possessed by sin after Adam deserted the fountain of, of righteousness. And, and I think this is important um, because in his commentary on Genesis, he held to a pretty literal reading of Genesis. So to me, it seems safe to argue that the doctrine of total depravity is built on the foundation of original sin. So with that in mind, the analogy that I would float to you guys is to imagine, some of you might not have to imagine this, uh, imagine you have a toddler. Um, you bring your toddler into the kitchen and you show her some ice cream that you're putting in the freezer. And you tell the toddler, don't eat the ice cream or you're going to be punished. And then you leave the toddler with a babysitter who tells them they can totally eat the ice cream and don't worry about being punished. And when you get back, the toddler has eaten the ice cream. So as an atheist, I'm, my thought is, is going, you know, what would be an appropriate response to this? And I think that telling the toddler that they and all their descendants will be punished for eating the ice cream and the stain of the ice cream will be on them forever. Um, and that, and that the only justification for this plan is your assertion that they should have obeyed you because you make the rules. Um, this, this is, is problematic to me. I, I know that the analogy isn't perfect, but I think it opens the door to a conversation about some of the potential flaws in the narrative. Um, and you know, I, I've heard a lot of atheists ask, you know, did Adam and Eve know what good and evil was before they ate from the tree? Were they capable of knowing the serpent was wrong to encourage them to disobey God? Um, and is it ethical, of course, to hold people today responsible for a woman eating forbidden fruit after being told it was okay to do so by a talking serpent? Um, so the the idea found in the Bible, and you guys will correct me if I'm wrong, is that mankind exists in this natural condition apart from God. I think we're all in agreement, total rebellion. Um, because of the sins of Adam and Eve, all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. All men are under the power of sin. You know, none is righteous. No, not one. Ephesians 2 makes it clear that all non-Christians are dead in trespasses and sins. But I would ask, why is this the case? Uh, and who set up the rules to this game? And I, I think I agree with Joel. Uh, uh, and there's this idea, you know, even when human beings do things that are good, which as creatures made in the image of God, it would make sense for them to be capable of doing good things. Those good actions are actually bad because they're done. Um, I think Piper has said in service to man's rebellion would be how you phrased it. Um, and in Romans 14, Paul says, whatever's not from faith is sin. So in response to Joel's earlier question about if everything we do in a fallen state is sinful, I think the answer is pretty clearly yes. And 
in our fallen state, we can't even reach out to God. Um, you guys know Romans eight, you know, the mind is, uh, hostile to God, uh, doesn't and cannot submit to God's law. Um, and so according to scripture, our total depravity in light of all this is sufficient to condemn us to eternal punishment. Um, Ephesians two, three says we're all children of wrath, right? And, um, the scriptures teach that God's condemnation of unbelievers to eternal punishment is, is just, but I think the only way to accept this um, and, and you touched on this earlier is if you begin from the position that the Bible is true and that God is just, and then sort of reverse engineer your moral intuitions to fit that position. Um, so my position would be that the doctrine of total depravity is rooted in an immoral um, and, and absurd narrative. Um, I think that it's an attempt to convince people that they're sick, that they're saturated with sin is how I used to put it, um, and that they're in need of a cure that coincidentally can only be found in the book that diagnoses them with the sickness in the first place. Um, but in light of what we know about the origins of man and the fact that at no time were there ever only two human beings on the planet, I don't think there's any reason to accept the Eden narrative. And then I would ask, why would one adopt an allegorical reading of the text? I don't think um, Jesus' sacrifice makes sense in light of an allegorical reading of Genesis. Um, and I, I, I'm putting a lot out there. I don't want to, but yeah, I, I think that, I think that, the doctrine of total depravity strikes me as a tragic way to view humanity. Um, I think that it's unjustified to assert that man exists in a fallen state. It's it's entirely grounded on one's acceptance of the Bible, which is a whole other issue we'll talk about on May 6th. But I, more importantly, the assumption that the world exists in a fallen state, I think warps one's perception of the world. I think I, I, I understand the headlines that you've brought up, but if you can read, you know, Stephen Pinker and note the decline of violence, you can look at the, the proliferation of human rights and sort of the slow eradication of poverty and preventable diseases. And I don't think it makes any sense to look at the, the upward trajectory of humanity through the lens of, of total depravity. And I, and I want to be clear, total depravity strikes me as an utterly biblical doctrine, but I just, I don't think that it supports it's supported by what we know about about the world that we we live in. I should stop. I'm rambling, but yeah, that's that's basically my my position. All right, who wants to jump in? Man, I just want to say uh, to start. Uh, totally appreciate your clarity. I feel like, and if it's true, you haven't been uh, thinking about theology in a number of years. Uh, you're you're still pretty sharp. No, it's been a while. Well, I, I feel like I was sound. So mm. with that <laughs> soundness. Uh, Helps out in, in the present day. You you brought up a ton. I mean, you, you brought up a lot of launching pads uh, to kind of start a conversation off. And there's a few things I, I want to start with. Maybe one um, uh, one point, but actually, I, I want to ask a, a, a real question in it. And the point is, one of the things you said at the very end is uh, you mentioned someone who's saying, you know, I see a lot of progress in the world. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting. And I I think there's a pretty solid argument to be made if you look back at some of those things that you that you, that you listed as progress, um, human rights, medicine. Uh, these are things that ultimately were developed out of a Christian worldview. And so I would actually agree with you on that statement. I would agree that what we see is a progress in the world that has been being lifted up. And much of the progress that ultimately that oftentimes is that even you just listed right there, a lot of those things were rooted, not just invented and developed and came out of Christians thinking this way. That's one way to think of it. But actually behind that, the reason those Christians took steps to create universities, took steps to develop hospitals, took steps to uh, create law and human rights, the reason for that was the Christian worldview that they were that they were baked in. And so they, they literally were rooted out of Christianity. And, and so I would agree with you, a lot progress has definitely been made 
but that was kind of also the promise of Jesus, right? Like there's a there's a fallen condition of the world. And Jesus said, hey, as you go out, my kingdom will expand and justice and righteousness will flow like a river. And I think you just said exactly, you kind of just affirmed what Jesus said. That's exactly what we see taking place in history. So that, that that's not my actual question, but I actually yeah, okay. I'll, I'll kind of put that out there for you to, to okay. noodle on a little bit. Uh, well, so my, my thought, I guess if I'm thinking about the, the sort of proliferation of the gospel, I think that the, the, any, any, effect that that would have on the well-being of, of of humanity is sort of secondary to the goal that people recognize that they have a need to uh to submit to the will of god um and then a, a, i know that in, in christianity one would argue that a natural consequence of that of that alignment with with god's spirit would then necessarily lead to the, the you know good things that i talked about i reject the idea that um medicine and peace and you know the, the sort of positive um steps that humanity has taken are rooted in a, a Christian worldview. Um, and I think it's pretty easy to see that those positive steps are taken all over the world um, by societies that have mutually exclusive religious claims and, and traditions. Um, so I think that, um, and, and I, I just, I don't think that there's any, and this, this might be sort of a, a radical thing to put on the table. I don't think that there's any anything that the Bible can take credit for as being a, a unique moral teaching or a goodness that can't also be found in other places. Um, love so, the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. I said moral good. I said a moral good. So the, the there's there's love your neighbor as yourself can be found outside of Christianity. Um, all the love your go Lord, your God stuff is, you know, sort of unnecessary to the, the project of, of, you know, improving the condition of humanity, um, from my perspective, from your, from your perspective. Sure. But, right. but doesn't, but doesn't that hit at the heart of it though, Ken is, um, for you to, um, uh, for you to determine, you know, which moral injunctions and proscriptions are necessary to human flourishing you have to have a an ethical and, and even a metaphysical starting point that's going to work its way through all of your thinking right so if you're if you're saying well sure love your neighbor that's necessary love your uh love the lord your god i mean that's really superfluous i mean as a christian i would say that that's not only is that not superfluous but that's that's the linchpin for all the other eth ethical commands and so to just arbitrarily dismiss that now i understand why from it from an atheistic uh, perspective, you would. I think you'd have to. There's no God there to love. But uh, when when we actually look at the way things played out in history, and we do look at the advancement of hospitals and uh, universities and modern medicine and modern science, they the fact of the matter it's really historically indisputable that those were inextricably tied up to the worldviews of the Christian worldviews of their originators, you know? Well, yeah. And in societies where religion, where Christianity was sort of the only game in town when it comes to authority, then you, you would expect that, that any, any good that happened in a society that was sort of overseen by, by Christian doctrine and Christian rulers. Um, yeah. I understand that Christianity would want to take credit for any good that was done in those societies. Um, well, not, not just want to take credit, but, but literally, but you literally don't see those things arising in any other societies than the Christian one. That's kind of my point. It's you not, you, you don't see what things I'm sorry. Oh, well, uh, the scientific revolution, for example, was arguably, you know, a direct product of the, the Protestant Reformation and, and the, the natural entailments that came out of that, working its way through, through society. You know, you don't see anything similar 
in uh, ancient Islamic culture, ancient Chinese culture. I mean, they're working with the same resources and the same natural world around them, but you don't you don't see anything like the scientific revolution or um, you know sure. the, the radical advancements that took place in Christian society in any of these other societies. Right, and and uh, and certainly the scientific revolution. Um, I mean, I, I'm immediately thinking of like Galileo, um, you know, being told by the Pope that the, the the church would be happy to make his his findings doctrine if if by there could be a, a papal decree to to sort of make in, enforce the, the 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 laws of Galileo. I I think that yeah, it, I mean, it makes sense if if the the Roman Catholic Church and and then later various Protestant factions are in control of Europe and that's where the scientific revolution is happening. Then um, I, I think that this is. I, I, it's 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 not entirely coincidental. I, I mean, I fully recognize and appreciate that there is a, a tradition in, in Christian thought um, that drove the the, the scientific findings. Um, but I, I also see the church being opposed to to science at every turn, uh, and even even literacy. Um, so I, uh, I, I, I just jumped on that real quick because yeah. I think this is an important point. The, the concept that we're, that I think I was trying to state is they were birthed out of a Christian worldview. And so definitely, if you look back at some of the ancient uh, civilizations of history, there are unbelievable minds that have come up from many non-Christian cultures. I mean, you look at some of the writings and the poetry and even just the, the, just the minds, the writings that have taken place. Absolutely, uh, there have been great minds. The, the reason science was developed from a Christian worldview was literally because the worldview put the pieces in place in such a way that science would be necessary. And this is actually a little bit of, at odds with what you were saying before. You were saying that the primary aim, uh, that the first, the first move of Christianity is uh, to kind of, I don't know, I want to say convert, uh, I guess is maybe, I don't want to summarize. That's not the word to use. I could clarify. So, and, and this would speak to something that Joel said too, is, is a moral action biblically, is, is an action moral if it benefits humanity or is it moral if it is commanded by God? Are, are you asking? Your... This, oh, generally. I mean, I understand that those two yeah. things can, can and often would overlap, right? Yeah. But if, if God commands something, is it is it moral regardless of whether or not it necessarily benefits humanity? Well, so I I, I think that um, I mean I, I remember a time when I visited uh, or or no this was when I was still working at Park Community Church and um, I went up to Rafe and and uh, I said uh, Rafe this is after you know we used to have all these meetings on Tuesdays and I go up to him I go Rafe I think I said something along the lines of Rafe I don't care what people say about you you're a good man you're a good man. And, uh, and Rafe looks at me and goes, none is good, but God, Joel. And, and it, aside from that, just being an excellent Jesus juke, um, a theology juke, uh, it's, I love it, when you catch me at my best moments thinking most biblically, Joel, thank you. For <laughs> so, so, um, according to the Bible operating out of a biblical worldview, what's good is in is what's in accordance with God's nature. I mean, as a former Calvinist, you I know you right. know this. Right. Um, so God's Jesus himself said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so when God speaks, when God gives commands, he's speaking out of his out of his good, by his definitionally good, morally good character. And so when when God uh says something like, you know, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the, it, 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 he creates the whole universe 
for his glory. When God says do not murder, that brings glory to God as well, but it, it also certainly benefits humanity. So insofar as God is giving moral commands to us, they are both in line with his good nature and in line with what's best for human flourishing. So there's really, there's no dichotomy there. It's not, it wouldn't be possible for God to give a command that wasn't good for us. Right. And Ken, well, I guess the question, the question kind of- He could give a command that isn't good for, you know, like the Canaanites or the Amalekites or for uh, slaves throughout history. I mean, there's plenty of things in the Bible that- What do you mean you know, good? You, when you say good, do you mean pleasant? No, no, no. I'm not talking about pleasant. So, and, and this is the, the grounding. I'm trying to nail down the grounding issue that you talked about because uh, it's important. Your guys, your, your moral grounding is in that which brings glory to God. And my moral grounding is in what is going to be beneficial in terms of maximizing human well-being and reducing human suffering. So th this is where the, the challenge comes. I think the challenge personally, <laughs> obviously from my bias, I think the challenge is actually on, on your end here. Because for the Christian, you labeled it right and Joel got it right as well when he said that there is a standard whereby we measure ethics and morality. And that's the word of God. God declares what is good. And you brought up a couple examples which you question whether or not you feel those were good or not. And there's a uh, there's much to be said on those that are actually probably not what they originally sound like when you bring up something like slavery in the Bible. Very different than what most people would think of when they think of slavery. However, we, at the end of the day, the Christian has a, uh, a straight line, right? Where we look at that line and we say, okay, we, we understand right and wrong based on this. And it sounds if, if, if I'm hearing you right, well, I guess let me start by saying once you remove that and you enter into the atheist's worldview, which is what you're claiming to be in, you ultimately are not left with a straight line to dictate what is right and wrong. And ultimately, it's very right. difficult to have a conversation of right and wrong at all. And the way you just said you'd like to measure right and wrong is by what most benefits. This is an old way. This is an old philosophy of measuring ethics is by what brings most positive gain to a culture while minimizing uh, the pain or minimizing the wicked that's done to a group. And the, the that's not what I said, I said okay, suffering. Sorry. I said suffering, just to well, be clear. Suffering. So some pain gain, is useful. Right, most gain while some suffering. And the, one of the challenges with that, and one of the reasons that's an old philosophy that typically is not brought up is because uh, essentially under that worldview, minorities always suffer. And, and, and this is my point. This is the point I'm going to bring up. You can justify American chattel slavery underneath what you just said. We take the least amount of people suffering to bring about the most amount of economic gain for a country. And you can basically say, if that's the equation, now let's just, uh, we've, we've taken God out. Now let's let's bring in a new straight do you, do line. You, do you recognize that that's a gross misrepresentation of my position? But just before you continue, do, do, you, do you recognize that that's not remotely what I've suggested? I know that's not what you're suggesting, but I think that the you brought it, what you've done is you brought in a new line of arbiting what is right and wrong. And I'm using that new line and saying historically, like literally philosophers have written about this a lot on that. I'm, I'm not like making that up. Sure. I, don't know. Yeah, I understand that. Like books have been written on that model of thinking about how do we justify ethics? And, and that's actually one of the main examples that's oftentimes used and why that model has oftentimes been abandoned is because it can justify tremendous evils to minorities. But if, if what we're talking about is is not reducing the conversation to a particular population group and saying, well, we can subjugate these people to elevate these other larger group of people. If what we're talking about is maximizing human well-being in a general sense, um, 
it, it becomes very difficult to justify something like slavery, which I would say is, can be simplified as just owning people as property. Um, it, it, that you're, we're not maximizing the well-being for, for those people in that scenario. Um, so Ken, um, you, I, I hate to, uh, we're, I don't want us to get into debate mode necessarily, but I, I do enjoy the, the, uh, the back and forth here. Um, when, when you talk about well-being and benefit and what's beneficial, um, Beth Young, who a uh, full disclosure is a, a member at Dan and my church, she says, how can we define good? We are applying our flawed and finite idea of good to God or trying to understand God and extract what we can, what we can understand about his goodness. Um, when we're talking about what's beneficial, you have to have a, a starting point that arises from your foundational principles by which you can define what's beneficial. And so as Rafe was saying, you know, as Christians, we can draw a straight line from literally from Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth all the way straight on through to the law of Christ and the Sermon on the Mount and um, and even the final judgment of, of the reprobate in the end of the book of Revelation. So there's a straight, straight moral line that runs all the way through. Um, as what I'm, I guess what I'm curious about is as an atheist, how do your atheistic principles give rise to a coherent definition of what's beneficial versus, uh, you know, what's deleterious to human flourishing? How do you even begin to define human flourishing? And that's an honest question. That's not a gotcha. No, I understand it is. So the, a few things came to mind. One is that when you talk about a moral line in the, in the Bible, uh, I think it's important to, to clarify that we're talking about moral in terms of brings glory to God, right? And that, that is the narrative arc of, of the scripture, um, all things being worked to, to the glory of God. Um, I and, hope that, and yeah. well, Romans eight twenty eight and God, we know that in all things, God works together for good, for the good of those who love him and are right. called according Out to his purpose. purpose. Right. I, yeah. Right. No, I, 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 so I, I hope that that was encapsulated in, in what I was uh, attempting to communicate a moment ago. So, but then when, when we talk about, um, atheistic principles, uh, there's no such thing as an atheistic principle. Atheism is the answer to one question and one question only. Uh, do I accept, uh, the proposition uh, that a particular God or, or gods exist? And the answer is no. Um, so from there, a principle. a principle, I'm sorry. That, that would be a principle though. Yes. That would be the, the one principle. It's a, the answering. I am not convinced is not a, a principle. Well, the, I, the, the principle would be, um, based on my criteria for judging whether or not a proposition is convincing, uh, the God question fails that test does not meet the criteria. That would be a principle that you have. True. I think, I, I think we might be running into, I, I may need you to define principle. Uh, uh, a, a proposition, a presupposition or proposition you accept, which serves as a basis for other thoughts and conclusions and reasonings that you have. I'm spitballing here, but yeah, yeah, I don't know that I'm presupposing anything in that scenario. I, I mean, I, I guess, uh, I, I would be presupposing that my senses are, 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 you know, working, but I don't know what other option I have. Um, I would be presupposing that, uh, you know, there are laws of logic that are intelligible to me and demonstrable. Um, I think the demonstrable elements of the laws of logic mean that, I, I don't know, I, I, I go back and forth about whether they're presupposed or if they're just demonstrated to work and sort of there's like a, you know, you have to invoke them to try to argue against them type of problem like that you're into, right? So, um, but with regard to atheistic principles, I, I just, I, I, 
I don't think that uh, that atheism gives rise to anything. So uh, under if if, my, if all I've got is atheism and I've just got, you know what, I'm not convinced that that there's a God. Um, yeah, that doesn't give rise to, to anything ethically or morally um, to, to think about and take on ethical questions. You have to you know start digging into other wells of, uh, of information. How would it how would it not give rise to anything? I mean, we're, we're dealing in the world of implications. So the implication of that idea that uh, there, you know, you reject the principle that a God exists, that that certainly gives license for other things to be possible, other actions to be justifiable. Right. Um, I think that I don't see the bridge from. I don't believe there's a God to therefore X. Um, I think that anything that I would attempt to justify in my own life, any behavior that I would, that I would take on, um, say I want to have a, a pint of Ben and Jerry's lately or you know, later today. Um, there's no, I'm an atheist. Therefore I should or should not have a pint of Ben and Jerry's. My assessment of whether the pint of Ben and Jerry's is going to be good or bad for me uh, has to be assessed using other criteria. That okay. other criteria all being informed by the first principle that you've already stated with, uh, with the rejection that, that a God exists. And so, so my example, my, my example would be, and this is maybe a silly one, but, um, you know, that you, you could get pretty a, a direct line from, uh, a God does not exist. Therefore I only live once or you only live, live once. Right. And that's kind of the encapsulation of do what, do what makes you happy right now in this moment. It, I, I don't see how I don't see how I don't believe there's a God could necessarily lead to I do or don't live once. Well, any conclusion that you come to, any conclusion, whether it's uh, I, you know, I, I live once or I don't live once, or or I can even ask the question about how many times I'm going to live. Uh, it, it has to start from that metaphysical basis, though. I mean, surely you'd agree with this. Um, starting from starting from a, a a foundation in which. God is the necessarily existent basis for all of the, the cosmos and, and everything is going to lead you to a very different line of thinking than oh sure it would um, than than starting from the principle of my default is atheism or my my default is a lack of belief in God and I've yet to meet any I've yet to encounter any evidence that you know meets my criteria for convincing me that there is a God I mean there's there's a foundational presupposition underlying each of those, a different fundamental presupposition that is going to have, I mean, however you end up reasoning out, you really can't deny that there's going to be implications of that first assumption. Can you? I think that that for every single God that I reject, there's an implication for the rejection of that God claim. Sorry, um, sorry. Could you repeat that one more time? I think that for every single God that I reject, that there's a, or, or any belief that I, that I would reject or, or adopt that there are, are necessary implications. So if, if that's all we're saying is that there are implications to atheism, um, especially in light of all the competing claims that are out there, then I think that I'd come with you on that. Um, I, I mean, there just like, I would say there's implications to not believing in Santa Claus or, or, you know, it's, it's. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, you, as a former Calvinist, you, you understand the metaphysical, the, the vast chasm between something like believing in the tooth fairy or Santa Claus and believing that, a necessarily existent God is sovereign over the cosmos. I mean, you know, that's not really a fair comparison. I, I'm just saying that the, the beliefs, have, it's not, I didn't mean for that to be thought of as a, as a comparison, but just 
an illustration that beliefs have consequences, regardless how you know silly the belief may seem. Also, I don't find anything in Calvinism about God being a necessary being necessarily. Well, God's God's sovereignty would sort of be at the heart of Calvinism and and you know, for God to be sovereign over creation indicates he has authority as the author. Uh creation being contingent, God would have to necessarily exist. I mean, there are all kinds of implications. I, I don't know if you ever encountered I know, that. I no, I, okay. I'm, I'm with you. Okay. Um, gentlemen, it is two minutes until we have to wrap up. Um, originally, Ken was just going to come on for a few minutes, share his thoughts. We were going to interact with it. But I got to tell you what, I really enjoyed this. We've got some good, really good comments here. Um, Romy says, I appreciate that atheists try to establish a moral system that works for humanity, and atheists can be very moral. So uh, Romy and I are uh, good friends, and um, I'm sure he and I will will speak uh, about that. That that sounds like I'm going to take him to task. It, it, not, <laughs> not at all. He'll probably take me to task. He's very smart. Uh, Beth Young says, ice cream or whatever. This still asks, what is good and how can I measure good? So yeah. Um, that's, that's great. If, if we wanna, I, I could, so it, 20 seconds. My, okay. So I, I evaluate the goodness of a, of any given choice, um, based on, on goals. So it, I have a goal to, uh, I'm getting married in October. I'd like to be able to fit into my tuxedo pants. So with respect to that goal, um, it would not be good for me to keep pounding down pipes and Ben and Jerry's. And, and that's an objective good. Um, we, we can make objective judgments about whether our, our actions about the consequences of our actions in light of our, of our goals. Sure. But you know, you go back far enough and we're not just talking about Ben and Jerry's obviously, or even marriage. We're talking about the, the, the goodness of something like marriage. We're talking about, um, you know, even marriage gets into what does it mean to be human? Right. Again, draw that straight line from Genesis one, one, all the way through to revelation and, and you're going to hit marriage, you're going to hit divorce, you're going to hit uh, wanting to, you know, how you interact with your wife. And part of that is, you know, not looking like a fat blob on your sure. wedding night, you know, all that stuff. So, um, well, I think the other thing too there, Joel, and just a quick <clears throat> kind of thought on that is, is if, if you are measuring goodness on how we're achieving a goal that we personally set, <clears throat> the, the, one of the challenges with that is like, I can get that, right? Okay. So you, you, you put a stake in the ground. Here's my aim. Here's what I want to get. And now I can measure my actions that I'm taking, whether or not that's helping me achieve that goal. And on a personal, on a one world system, I could see how that would uh, potentially work. Uh, one of the challenges though, is that in a, in a, in a world that we live in with billions of people all setting goals that are conflicting and, and going against each other. And some of those goals being to the harm of other people. In fact, not just some, but many of them all the time, uh, you, it's very difficult to see that same logic all the way through, which is, I think, probably one of the hearts of what I was trying to get at earlier. Yeah. Is that I think you, I think one of the challenges, and this is where I, I, this is this debate. I wish we had a whole another hour to go through because I think one of the challenges I, I, I want to talk through is how do we determine if good is determined by personal goals? What do we do when there's two conflicting and competing personal goals? Are they both declared good or can one ultimately yeah. be the other? No, I'm with you. And that's that's where the conversation takes place. And we could, we could extrapolate this from the ice cream thing to, to marriage itself. Is marriage a good? Um, and we can have a conversation collectively uh, as to whether or not as social animals, it is good for 
you know, two people to pair up and, and, and what the pros and cons are of that. And we can make assessments about whether or not that's, you know, going to be beneficial or harmful to our, to our species. Um, I've, I know there are people out there who will argue that marriage is not a good thing. Um, I, I disagree with them, but the conversation can happen. And I think that if we have a set of goals for, for humanity, that we can then make objective judgments uh, in light of, of those goals. That's Ken, because, because I know you a little bit and um, you, you, you seem to be a guy who um, from, from what I've seen uh, is I, I, I find you a, a likable guy and you and I have talked about wanting to, you know, hang out, grab a, uh, a coffee or something sometime. Um, what terrifies me about what you just said is that anyone could use those exact same words to justify literally anything, literally anything. It all depends on who the planners are, who the goal setters are. Yeah. And so, um, unfortunately we're going to have to leave that question unanswered, but, um, Man, we got to do this again. I know I'm 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 looking forward to our debate even more now, um, yeah. because uh, hopefully we'll be able to get to hash out some of these ideas. And Ken, can I just say um, thank you for being willing to come on a podcast with three Christians? And um, I, I hope you found it to be you know uh, it's respectful. like coming home. Are you kidding me? It's nuts. Yeah, you guys are fantastic. You well, guys are fantastic. Thank you. let me tell you, man. You know we're all going to be praying that you really do come home. Uh, so, but you know what? If if, if there's no God to listen to those prayers, you have nothing to worry about. If on the other hand, he does exist, uh, brace yourself, man, just brace yourself. Uh, and all seriousness, and all seriousness, man, this has been really, really great. Thank you so much for jumping on. Yeah. And, um, uh, Ken, before you go, can you tell people how can they see more of your videos, interact with more of your thoughts? Yeah. Uh, so, I've been um, fairly active uh, in, in conversations and debates on a Facebook page called uh, Your Friendly Neighborhood Atheist. I would encourage anyone to check it out. Uh, the, the guy who, who runs it is is fantastic and, and just loves to sort of facilitate these types of conversations. Um, I, I'm, I'm barely on, on Twitter, but um, I'm, I'm on there and uh, people can connect with me on Facebook. And I'm, I love having these kind of conversations and I appreciate uh, you guys having me. Awesome. All right. Uh, Thanks for being here. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Ken. All right, gents, we have to wrap up. But uh, Dan, real quick, would you uh, give us a shameless plug for your your blog and uh, and your, your other projects that you're working on? Uh, yeah, you can follow uh, what we've got going on uh, with uh, a page called Theology in the Round, which is a conversation designed to give viewers like a backdoor, back window view into how to have important theological conversations uh, about the world and things that are happening right now. So we've tackled uh, communion, baptism. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, on tomorrow at uh, 2 p.m. We're going to be going live with a conversation of are we in a new reformation right now? Uh, and so I'm really excited for this topic. I can find that on Facebook, uh, Theology in the Round. Go to my my Facebook page to find links or the Park Forest Glen Facebook page. So does Theology in the Round have its own Facebook page now? It does. It's not published yet because we're, we're still building it. So it doesn't look like a janky little website. Cool. Awesome. Rafe, how about you, man? Uh, I would just say I'm the pastor down at Park Community Church South Loop in the South Loop neighborhood. Uh, we uh, have, uh, let's see, I have a blog that I maintain, rafechenry.com, and uh, we're always doing stuff in the South Loop. So another little project of ours is called the, it's called Think South Loop, which is an apologetics kind of workshop type of place. So uh, those are the three places. Rafechenry.com is where I put out a lot of my writing. All right. Well, thank you so much for tuning into the Think Podcast. 
And you know what? Um, this is not goodbye. This has just been a little pit stop along the road of your spiritual journey. Feel free to connect with the Think Institute simply by going to thethink.institute. You can connect with us on Twitter at, at thinkinst or Facebook and Instagram at thethinkinstitute. On Instagram, we're always sharing behind the scenes photos, um, beautiful, beautiful pictures of my uh, Think Institute study, things like that. I cannot wait until quarantine is over and I can get guys back in here to have theological and philosophical discussions. Um, and uh, you know what? As I said, this is not goodbye. I, I really hope that um, you've been able to watch our interaction today and that you've gleaned something, some kind of takeaway that's going to help you over this next week in your interactions, whether in person or digitally, with people who disagree with you, who believe differently. It's so important for us to always be ready to give a defense for the hope that we have within us, but to do so with gentleness and respect. So that's all we have for you today. Until next time, I hope it made you think.